Welcome to the podcast ministry of Pilgrim Baptist Church. Wherever you're listening from, welcome. We pray that the truth from the Word of God speaks to your heart during today's message. Uh, There is a movement out there called the scholarship only movement, and they believe they will turn, they will coin or have coined the term the uh, King James Version, the KJV onlyness, onlyest, and they will say that they are divisive people. They will say that it harms the body of Christ. And I believe that they play a false humility card when they try to, you know, paint the brush broad like that. Because I will tell you, there's divisive people on all stripes. <laughs> you, you can't go anywhere and not find a divisive person. So because you found somebody that has a bad attitude that believes the King James Bible is the word of God, that don't mean everybody does. That don't mean everybody does. Um, I'll tell you this before we get started in the message. Uh, give me somebody that's got a good attitude for Christ. Give me somebody that wants to win, uh, win souls and witness to the lost and can get along with Christians that don't agree with them on everything. And um, if he's got an NIV under his under his arm, I'll hang. Uh, give me that guy. I'll hang out with that guy <laughs> over a guy that's got the King James Bible. And he's mean and nasty and divisive and just. I'm just telling you, if you're going to say you believe the King James Bible, y'all better obey what it says. <laughs> better have some Christian charity. You better have some love for the brethren. You better be okay with someone saying, "I don't see it the way you see it, brother." Now, with that said, I believe the scholarship only movement is divisive. I really do. I don't think it unites. I think it divides. I'll say this. We all know John 4, 24. God is a spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And so they will say there is no final authority that you can hold in your lap. What you've got in your lap tonight isn't something you can trust and believe and is perfect. They say that because they say the Bible says that God is a spirit. What you're holding in your lap is something that's material. It's scripted. It's a book. You can hold it. They believe that God might have preserved his word. You know, if all the originals were put together and he was able to, that might have happened. You know, God's powerful enough to do that. But since they were lost. God kind of almost did the preservation thing, but not really quite. And that's what they believe. They don't believe you can hold any book in your hand that's authoritative. And they will tolerate preaching like this. They will tolerate Christians that believe the Bible uh, to be to be uh, divinely inspired and then divinely preserved by God. Um. Uh, But they will tolerate you as long as you say, that's my preference. As soon as you go beyond, that's my preference, and I believe this is the word of God, that's where they they just can't can't take it anymore. And they just will go after you in all sorts of different ways. So I believe the scholarship onlyism is doctrinally wrong, primarily because they remove the supernatural. Proverbs 16, 9 says, a man's heart deviseth his way, but the Lord directeth his steps. 
Do you know that language was supernaturally given by God? It was a supernatural thing. And there was a point when there was only one language. What language did God give Adam and Eve? I don't know. You don't know? Nobody's going to know. You know why? Because the Bible doesn't say. But we know that Genesis 11 says, and the whole earth was of one language. And of one speech. You know how that long, you know how long that lasted? Until the Tower of Babel. That's how long it lasted. And you know what God did again with language? He did something supernatural. He confounded it. And then we had many languages that were created supernaturally by God. Genesis 11, 9 says, therefore is the name of it called Babel because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth. There's a supernatural work of God that happened and started with languages. And this Bible isn't a linguistic book primarily. It is primarily a spiritual book. That was supernaturally inspired his word and he supernaturally preserved it. And I believe that. And I do believe that by faith. Ecclesiastes three. I asked you to turn there. Let's read verse number 14. I know that. Whatsoever God doeth. It shall be. Forever, nothing can be put to it, nor anything taken from it, and God doeth it that men should fear before him. God's not going to allow his word to be changed or distorted because everything he does, like we read in Ecclesiastes, men should really just get more into the whole idea of Fearing God, not trying to go to his word to correct it. You say that's a what? That's a Bible principle. That's a Bible principle. If you fear God, do you fear God? I don't want to start correcting his book. Well, where is it? Which one's right? Which put all that aside for now. And, and, and just get your mind on this. If you believe he preserved his word, you ought to fear not going into it and changing it. That's a principle there in Ecclesiastes 3. It'll be forever. Nothing can be put. Nothing can be put to it. You know, the scripture says, Jesus said in John 10, the scripture cannot be broken. God is a spirit. That's true. But why does Jesus say the scripture Cannot be broken. You've got something written. You have something material in, in material form. Turn to te, uh, Second Timothy two, and let's let me ask you this question. Second uh, Second Timothy chapter three, rather. Watch it says in verse number fifteen, and that from a child. Thou hast known the holy 
scriptures. What did Timothy have as a child? It says in here he had the Holy Scriptures. That would be something scripted in written form. And the Bible says that it was holy. Are you going to tell me that he had the originals? Timothy didn't have the originals. It was not reading out of the originals. Timothy, Timothy's mother and Timothy's grandmother had a copy of a copy of a copy. And I don't know how many times more to say copy because I don't know how many far down the line it was a copy. But I know this. He had something that had to be from God because the Bible tells us so. Where in the Bible does it say that the King James Bible is the Bible? Duh, it doesn't. Which is why they asked that question. But my question is, okay, you tell me what Timothy has. Well, the Bible doesn't say he had a King James Bible. No. He had something that wasn't an original, was a copy of a copy of a copy. And we know it was the Holy Scriptures. Do you have all the answers? Do I have all the answers? No. But we have a supernatural work of God in preservation. Supernatural means you can't answer all the questions and I can't answer all the questions. And then it says in verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. All of it, not some of it. Scripted form we can hold in our hand. It's material. God is a spirit. You must worship him in spirit and in truth. And he says, thy word is truth. And he says, there's something scripted. We got it. We can hold it. We can believe it. Now go to 1 Corinthians 14. We we're talking about last week. The idea of edification requires intelligibility. And we'll uh, quickly just review that thought to get into our next. 1 Corinthians 14. Look what it says, verse number 9. So likewise, ye accept, ye utter by the tongue words easy to be understood. How shall it be known what is spoken? For you shall speak into the air. So the idea was we talked about dead words and this term of false friends, which is, well, it's not. How's, how's anybody going to be edified if I used words or use words that we don't understand? We talked about the full context of this chapter would be tongues. And I tried to coin the phrase intelligibility. If, if edification requires intelligibility, then in the same chapter, you must agree that intelligibility requires prophesyth ability. <laughs> because, yeah, yeah, you like that one. Look at verse number three, and I'll tell you why. For he that speaketh in an unknown tongue speaketh not unto men, but unto God. For no man understandeth him, howbeit in the spirit. He speaketh mysteries, but he that prophesieth speaketh unto men to edification and exhortation and comfort. He that speaketh in an unknown tongue edifieth himself, but he that prophesieth edifieth the church. And we have two forms of prophecy. One is the foretelling. And we have all of the foretelling prophecies of old that will come to pass. The other type of prophesying is forth 
telling. You are giving forth truth from God's word. And that is what edifies. And it has to be done in an, ex in an exhortation type way, like we saw in 1 Corinthians. In other words, I can't just say something that's incoherent and expect the saints to be edified in any way. Edification requires intelligibility, but intelligibility requires prophesyability. Someone's going to have to foretell God's truth. Let's stay in 1 Corinthians 14. Now, you see that word in verse 4. Look at it. But he that prophesieth. Well, can't we just add an S to that and make it who, he who prophesies? No, we can't. Because that would be, when you add an S, that makes a singular word what? A plural word. Can't we just add an ED for past tense? Shouldn't, we, shouldn't it just be, but he that prophesied edifieth the church? No, because it's not supposed to be a past tense verb. If you change that to a plural word, or you change that to a past tense verb, you know by learning English, those are two, th those, those words mean two entirely different things. You would agree with that, right? We learned that in English class. So you have this E-T-H ending, and by the way, the E-S-T, est, or eth, all of them, it doesn't involve a past tense or a plural. That's not why that ending is there. It's the reason why S or ED is not there. That F or that S is an ongoing. It's an active, ongoing present tense. It's not a verb in its past tense form. It's not a noun in its plural form. It's a word that is in its active and ongoing form. In other examples, when, when Jesus said to Peter, remember when he said, lovest thou me? What do you think? It should have been loved. You think Jesus wanted Peter to point back to just one time in the past when he loved him in the past? No. The whole point of oh, that whole thing with Peter is that Christ is trying to point out, you don't have an active ongoing love for me, Peter. Love this. That ending brings out more clarity in the text. In other words, what did I just do? Prophesy. To exhort the saints by teaching so that now you have an understanding of what that ETH or that EST ending is. How long did that really take us? Not that long. We know what a plural is. We know what a past tense verb is. Now we know what an active ongoing word is. It's not hard. I used words and all preachers and teachers use words to help advise, to help counsel, to, to help urge. And that's what preaching and teaching is. That is the exhortation part of what the passage is speaking of. It's just too hard. It's just too. Isn't that going to drive people away? Learning shouldn't. 
People assume that when they correct the Bible or they change the Bible, they assume that there will be no loss of biblical truth. And I believe that that is a wrong assumption. They assume that their conclusion is right. They assume that their logic is right. They assume that their reasoning is right. So the final authority is them. So the supernatural is taken out. So when you say I have faith that God preserved his word and I've got it right here in English, I just believe it. That's a supernatural claim. My faith is in God's ability to preserve, not man's ability to think. Now, go to Genesis 32. We'll just we'll make this into a little kind of a game. Genesis chapter number 32. I am not going to tell you what the word means. Now, if you already know what the word means, then I guess this won't work. But just follow along with me and pretend you don't know what it means if you do. Genesis 32, verse 31. And as he passed over Penuel, the sun rose upon him, and he halted upon his thigh. Oh, no. Halted. I'm going to have a nervous breakdown. I don't know what that word is. Somebody get me a translator. Somebody get me a scholar. <laughs> who reads the Bible like that? I'll tell you who does. The scholarship only movement reads the Bible like that. The word halted. Let's run out in traffic. I don't know what to do. Nobody's going to understand the Bible now. Now, I overstated that and I had some sarcasm to prove the point. You came to a word and you don't know what that word means. So let's do what is a long lost art of Americans that need to have everything like fast food. Let's think. Okay, so let's think. Let's read it again. Look at verse 30, uh, 31. And he passed over Penuel, the sun rose upon him, and he halted upon his thigh. Hmm. Probably help if I read the whole chapter, but we got a bunch of people here and we're already a few minutes in. So let's pick some key verses out of the chapter to get some context. Let's go to verse 24. Okay. And Jacob was left alone. And there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. Huh. So look at this. He halted upon his thigh. Verse 24, Jacob's wrestling. Verse 31, he's halting on his thigh. Look at verse 25. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint. And as he wrestled with him, you've got wrestling. You've got wrestling again. You've got the hollow of his thigh. You've got the hollow of his thigh is out of joint. You're in verse 31. Oh, no, the thigh's out of joint. He's walking now. And sun rose and he halted upon his thigh. Everybody get the idea what's going on? I never even had to use the word limp. You read the text, you read it again, you read the chapter, you read some key verses that might be considered a way to cross-reference it, and you know what happens? The Spirit of God speaks to you. In other words, I don't, I, I'm not, God isn't requiring 
a current word for you to understand his Bible. In other words, I don't have to say limp for you to understand what halt is. You can get the idea of the word halt by just reading it. Let's pretend you never in your life learned the word limp. You never learned it. But you read this passage, and growing up, you came away with knowing that, what's that guy halting for? You're not required to know all the, none of us are required to know what the word limp means. Not in this passage. We can get the idea of what it is by reading it. And that's what I'm trying to point out. Look, uh, here's another one. I'll read it to you. You don't have to turn there. Okay. All right. How would you how would you know what the word limp means? You learned it. How do you know what halt means? You learned it. Walk with difficulty. Dictionary says where your gait is impeded. Well, how do you know what impede is? You learned it. <laughs> it's like this is what exhortation is. In Isaiah 14, 23, let me read you this sentence. And I want you to pretend that you don't know what the word besom is. And I will sweep it with the besom of destruction, saith the Lord of hosts. Huh. I came to the word besom. I don't know what besom is. I will sweep it with the besom of destruction. Sweep. Huh. So now, you know what besom means? It's a besom. Besom means broom, but I want you to pretend you don't even know what the word broom is. And it says, sweep it with the besom of destruction. Can you go in the back and grab the besom, please? Now, if I said go in the back closet, in the, in, the, in the utility closet, we need to do some sweeping. Can you grab the besom for me, please? What do you think? You're going to come out with a fire hose? <laughs> I need you to sweep something. <laughs> go grab the besom. You're going to come out with peanut butter and jelly and bread and start making sandwiches? No. You're going you're gonna to find an implement in there that can sweep. And you're going to come out and you're going to grow up not knowing the word broom. You're going to be the kid that calls it a besom. <laughs> and when your friends come over, you're going to say, you know what? We got to do some work before we go out and play. Can you grab that besom? Well, I'm going to grab the other besom. Why? We're going to sweep. What's a besom? You don't know what a besom is? A besom is a besom. You don't ever even have to say the word broom. At all. And that's insulting to the scholarship only movement because they will say, you've insulted me. You're making me use a word that I don't know. I don't know that word. You know that you don't know what that word means. And I don't want to use that word. And I never will use it because it's old and archaic. Just like your Bible. And that's what they think. And that's what they believe. And I am appealing to them. Do not believe that anymore. You know, I did that. A little example because. 
Okay. If I were to say besom means broom, and I say that in a sermon, why then would it be wrong for a translator to say it ahead of time and write it down in a Bible and retranslate the Bible? You got to admit, that's a pretty good argument. We falsely assume that we must have a word that we perceive to be modern and in use. If I say this word means or I give an illustration, that's not the word of God. That's me as a teacher. That's you as a teacher. If you're teaching as a way of exhorting the saints, the motive is not to change the word of God. It's to exhort the saints. This is why I always say, and all good preachers will always say, you got to check the Bible out for yourself. You've got to read the Bible. Because everything I say is just commentary. Everything you say is just commentary. Let me give you an example of some words from the computer language. Bit. A bit is a single piece of data. Now that's, you could consider that a modern word. Every time we see B-I-T in the Bible, do we have to change it? No. Because everything we get involved in involves a language system. A byte, it's eight bits strung together. A nibble is a half a byte, it's four bits. A dward, that's a double word, that's 32 bits. Who, how many of you knew what a dward was? Me neither, until I looked it up. That's computer language. If you saw dward in the Bible, it's not in the Bible, but if you saw it, you know what the scholarship only movement would say? Well, that's an archaic word, except it's not. Well, that's a false friend, because it meant something then, now it means something now. Every system, every occupation has its own language system. It's okay to learn new words. You know, with email, you know they have the word emoji? That's an emoticon. That's a way to convey emotion. Spam, you know what that is? Junk email. Pfizing, that's that link that they try to trick you to click on, and then you give your personal information or identity stolen. Computer term. This idea that we have to avoid any words that are unfamiliar is, is very dangerous ground. Do we get rid of the word atonement? Do we get rid of the word preach and replace it with, well, let's just share. Do we get rid of propitiation? Do we get rid of justification? Do we get rid of the phrase word of God? Where does it stop? The next thing you know, you're going to end up with all these perversions. Oh, wait, we did end up with that. It is not wrong to come across the word that isn't in use anymore. It's not wrong to come across a word where the definition is changed. It is not wrong to have to look something up to get some understanding. Nowhere in the Bible does it tell us we must abandon archaic words because we don't understand it right away. This isn't fast food Christianity. This isn't pull up to the drive-thru. I need fries, a hamburger, and a soda. 
you're going to have to study. Go to Mark 6. Another one here. Mark 6. I'm not going to explain this word. Mark 6.25. Mark 6.25. I should say. And she came in straightway with haste unto the king and asked, saying, I will that thou give me by and by in a charger the head of John the Baptist. Now, you don't know what by and by means. And if you do, assume that you don't. Oh, no. We're sunk. I will that thou give me by and by. All right, let's 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 go back a little bit. Let's read at verse 24. And she went forth and said unto mother, What shall I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in straightway with haste unto the king and asked, saying, I will thou give me by and by in a charger the head of John the Baptist. And the king was exceeding sorry. Yet for his oath's sake, and for their sakes, which sat with him, he would not reject her. Watch verse 27. And immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought. And he was, he, and he went and beheaded him in prison. So we just read four verses, five verses, something like this. Okay, you got to think. I want you to stay with me. Think, think, think. Verse 25. I will that thou give me by and by in a charger. That was the appeal to the king, right? By and by. Give me that head. By and by in a charger. What happened in verse 27? And immediately the king sent an executioner. What do you think by and by meant in the context? Verse 27 gave you the answer. By and by means immediately. The Bible just defined the Bible. <laughs> Verse 27 told you what by and by meant. It was right. It's right there. We just got to read it. We got to reread it and we can figure these things out. It interpreted itself. Go to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13. So now you know what by and by means if you haven't already. Matthew 13 verse number 21. It's a supernatural book. We need to be careful we don't move it to just a linguistic book. Matthew 13, verse 21. Yet hath he not root in himself, but Doroth for a while. That'd be durable. Doroth, durable for a while. For when tribulation or persecution ariseth because of the word, by and by, he is offended. See that term again? By and by. Well, that's an archaic word. We just got some understanding in Mark 6. But I want to point out something else. Look at verse 19. When anyone heareth the word of the kingdom and understandeth it not, then cometh the wicked one and catch the way that which was sown in his heart. Where does the word have to go? Your heart. This is he which received seed by the wayside. 
But he that received the seed into stony places, the same as he that heareth the word, and Annan with joy received it. Yet hath he not rooted himself, but doeth for a while, for when tribulation or persecution ariseth because of the word, by and by he is offended. In other words, immediately he is offended. He also that received seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word. There it is again. And the care of this world and the seedfulness of riches choke the word and he becometh unfruitful. Where does that word have to take root in? The heart. This is a spiritual thing. The word has to take root in our hearts, but he that received seed into the good ground, verse 23, is he that heareth the word and understandeth it, which also beareth fruit, bringeth forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. So there's your Sunday morning, your Sunday night, your midweek service at the end of verse 23. But you you got you got something, the word of God has to take root somewhere. Rather than in your head. It's got to take root. In your heart. Isn't salvation the same way? I mean doctrinally. You think it's hard for someone to learn. What we believe in their head. How many heathen people do you talk to. And they know the gospel. Where? Here. Didn't drop here. Didn't drop here. Let's do let's do one more. Hebrews four. We'll make this a continuation because I won't get through all the notes. But go to Hebrews four. Hebrews four, verse number twelve. For the word of God is quick. And powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrows, and the discern of thoughts and intents of what? The heart. Okay, now do you know what quick means? Um, if I were to say to you, the quick and the dead. Second Timothy 4. If you're not dead, you're quick. See, it goes back to this. If I said to you, well, what quick means is alive. They would say, you see, preacher, you're one of those KJV guys. You just said that quick means alive, yet you're not okay with the modern translation like the ESV, the NIV, and the NASB that has the word alive in the translation. So they say, you see, you you said quick means alive, and you're okay with that. You're giving yourself a pass, but you're not giving the translator a pass that puts out a new modern version and says it ahead of time and puts it in print. In other words, they're saying you did the same thing. So if you're not dead, you're quick. If you're not dead, you're, don't say alive, quick. See, you don't need to know what the word alive means to know what quick means. Because all I have to do is say to you, if you're not dead, you're quick. The spirit quicken it. 
wait, wait, wait. Were you dead in trespasses and sins? Was I dead in trespasses and sins? You know what the spirit did? Quickeneth. What did that do? It made you not dead. Oh, you mean I'm quick? Yeah, you're quick. I'm not dead in sins anymore? No, your, your spirit's been quickening. You don't need to use another word to get an understanding of a new word because the Bible will explain it to you. Now, that takes study. That takes a different way of thinking it, but that's called exhortation. Look at Hebrews 4, verse 2. For unto us the gospel preached, uh, was the gospel preached, as well as unto them, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. No advantage. You know why? Because it didn't influence where? Their heart. It didn't influence their heart. The gospel must be received by faith because it is a supernatural work of God. Just like the promise God made to preserve his word. It's a supernatural work of God. And in, and in Hebrews 4, you see verse 1, you see his rest. Verse 4, you see, and God did rest. Uh, verse number 3, for which we have believed to enter into rest. Verse number 5, my rest. Verse number eight, for if Jesus had given them rest. Verse number nine, therefore a rest to the people of God. Verse 10, entered into his rest. Verse 11, therefore to enter into that rest. You know why they don't have any rest? Because there's something wrong with their hearts. That's why people need to hear the gospel. It needs to be a supernatural heart transplant by God. And that is the example of unbelief that I'm trying to bring out that is the doctrinal problem with scholarship only. They don't believe God's promise to preserve his word. They can't point to anything except the originals that you can't point to because they're not there. Verse 13. Verse number 13. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. Who's all wise and all powerful? God. No other creature. Let's not be self-deceived and think that we can hide anything from God. He knows how to construct his word. And he knows how to preserve his word so that it would pierce your heart. God knows. No preacher can do that. No translator can do that. We're not into man worship, preacher worship, translator worship. Do you know that the KJV translators put in print that they were not ascribing that what they put was, in, was inspired of God? Do you know why they put that? 
they're not trying to take credit. They didn't even have faith in themselves in what they were doing. You go to the gay pride parade or you go to any of these outreaches and Lord, I don't know how this is going to work. I'm not going to be able to do this. This is not going to. And somehow God makes a way for it to work. You imagine if the translator said, yeah, this is the inspired word of God. This scholarship only movement would go through the roof. You wouldn't win either way. But they put in print, we are not claiming inspiration. That's not a good argument to say that God didn't preserve his word. That's a good argument to say those are some humble men of God that were not trying to take credit. But they were used of God. And that's not the topic of this. So we'll get off that and, and look at it another time. But let's finish up here on uh, Hebrews 4. And then we'll get into uh, some of the other thoughts next next time, Lord willing. Uh, in, in, verse, in chapter number 4, in verse 13. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in sight, but all things are naked and open under the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Entirely exposed. What did we say? Verse 12, for the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two edged sword. Piercing even the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, the joints of marrow and discern of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Verse number 13, we see all things are naked and open under the eyes of him with whom we have to do. You're exposed. Like your neck would be exposed to a sword. Like an animal that would be slaughtered, his neck is exposed to a sword. Like a wrestler or a fighter that would have that, that sin grip. You know that when, when, when that happens, this is why you're taught in wrestling or any combat sports. Keep your chin in. Why? Because you're going to be exposed. You're going to be open. Someone's going to come around and choke you. Someone's going to have that chin grip on you, be able to pin you. That sword that's quick and powerful gives you the ability to submit and control and pierce. That's the word of God. It will so open and expose someone that it will pierce their heart. And that's what we wield. That's the sword of the spirit. You see, this is a supernatural thing. And you and I can do nothing to hinder the supernatural work of God. The word of God will expose them and pierce their heart. That's the idea here. It's a spiritual thing, though. Unless you want to take your Bible and try to jam it through someone's chest, which nobody would. Would you want the world to really see what your real intents and your real thoughts and your real? You wouldn't. You would want to hide them as much as you can. Matter of fact, we live our life to try to escape the gaze of men. We're very selective about what we put on Facebook. Because we want people to think that we're all right. But you know what the word of God does? It exposes you. It exposes me. And it pierces. 
and open on the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Our account is with him. We don't impose on God. And you and I will be tried by a holy and pure God who knows who we are. And we'll stop here with this last thought because we've gone good enough for tonight. It's a supernatural book. And the minute we try to not make it a supernatural book is when we get into problems. The word of God will expose the intents of the heart. That's what we preach. That's what we wield. You can't get away from it. It's a supernatural book that can do a supernatural work. Thank you for listening to the podcast ministry of Pilgrim Baptist Church. We look forward to seeing you in the next episode. In the meantime, you can sign up for our email newsletter at www.pilgrimbaptist.church.